I want to begin our time in the study of God's Word this morning by asking you to consider, consider specifically, what is a successful church? Is Desert Springs a successful church? What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What kinds of things can we bank on and lean upon as we move forward? Well, to help us answer these questions, the elders recently hired a top exec from a Fortune 500 company to come to DSC for a week and to evaluate us, to tell us what success looks like and how to think like a successful church, how to rally around our strengths and ignore our weaknesses, how to think outside the box to suggest some new ways of doing church, new ideas that should enliven us, new initiatives that should give us fresh motivation, new programs that seem to be working in other parts of this country in unparalleled ways, new ways to get our name out there so that Desert Springs is a household name in Albuquerque. We spared no expense getting this consulting, that we feel like it was right and that the insight was invaluable and that this insight should lead us from strength to strength or like one business book says, from good to great. Well, I hope that if you've been coming to DSC for some time, you're nervous right now. We did not hire an exec from a Fortune 500 company. I repeat, we did not hire an exec from a Fortune 500 company, and I pray that we never do. It's not that a church couldn't learn anything from an entrepreneur. It's not that the church, especially in the U.S., doesn't have some parallels with the business world. It's not that common sense wisdom shouldn't be applied to the church's plans and organization, its programs. But the church's foundation is different. The church's approach to things like success and strength, the Bible's definitions of things like success and strength and growth, vision and strategy, they're not just different But in many ways, they're inverted from the world's treatment of those same things. So what is a successful church? What can we trust in and lean upon? What are our strengths and weaknesses? What what constitutes victory? And when should we feel victorious? What can we boast in? What can we be proud of? What should motivate us? And what are our goals? Well, good news, God himself has answered these questions for us. He's actually far more experienced than any Fortune 500 exec. He's wiser than all the CEOs of the world put together. And he's answered these seemingly modern-day questions in a best-selling book we call the Bible. So it's to God's word that we turn for the answers to these questions and for his prescription for what we should do, what we should be, how we should measure things, what we can expect and where we're supposed to go. 
I think these issues are addressed best, in my opinion, in Paul's letter that we call 2 Corinthians. Would you turn there? 2 Corinthians, if you have a Bible with you. We have this tradition at DSC of doing an annual State of the Communion address, we call it. Obviously, borrowing from what the president does this time of year, every year, giving a State of the Union address. We, a little tongue-in-cheek, add a calm to it to make sure it's a church thing. It's, we're not a union. We're in fellowship with each other. We're a partnership. We're, we're in community. So we call it a State of the Communion. And just like the State of the Union, in part it's a look back at the last year and things that are going on and things we should be praying about. It's a look ahead to what we're planning to do and, and how we should be praying about that. And it's also hearing from a key passage of Scripture which speaks to identity, which helps us interpret what God has been doing in our midst and what should shape and clar- clarify and give vision and even motivate what we aim to do in the future. Now, we've been doing this for several years And from year to year, there are varying ratios between how much Bible we talk about and how much of the headlines we talk about. Not newspaper headlines, our own headlines. So how much we talk about what happened last year, what we plan to do in the future, and on the other hand, what a certain passage is saying to us. That ratio changes from year to year, and this year, without apology, I want to emphasize more what God's word says to us than what we've seen him do in the last year. We'll eventually get to some things to highlight about last year and how we can praise him for it. But let's start with 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the last verse. We'll be all over this great book, but we'll start with just one verse. Paul says, And we all, with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about moving from one degree of glory to another, and that's a key phrase. And at first... Just reading that alone, without context around it, by itself sounds a little bit like a business slogan. It sounds a little bit like going from good to great. Whatever glory is, it sounds good. And whatever it means to move from one degree of it to another sounds like success or growth or improvement. But, But be careful. The Bible is not a slogan factory. Bible study is not mining out slogans for motivation to put below a picture and frame in your office. To understand this verse properly, we have to see how it fits into the whole book. Let's start with what I think is the major theme of the book of 2 Corinthians. I'd put it like this. It's about God's ever-increasing glory amidst ever-present weakness. I think 2 Corinthians is about God's ever-increasing glory alongside, right next to, 
mingled within ever-present weakness. It's paradoxical. And it's an inverse of the world's conceptions of success and strength on the one hand and weakness and struggle on the other. So let's probe some more. Let's ask several questions. We'll we'll let 2 Corinthians 3.18 be the springboard for these questions, but then we'll run all through the book to provide answers to those questions. Five questions if you're taking notes. The first will be a quick one. What is God's glory? What is God's glory? 2 Corinthians 3.18 says we're being changed from one degree of glory to another as his people. His glory is all over this book. We'll see it as we continue our study in it this morning. God's glory as we see through it and elsewhere in the Bible means his attributes. Who he is, what he's done, how he reveals himself. It's even his presence or the experience of his presence. It's sometimes equated with his beauty or his weight. It's a hard word to define. It's almost like one of those words that you know what it is simply by being around it a bunch, reading it a bunch in context in the Bible. My family, my mom's side, is French-Canadian, so I grew up hearing... French phrases at the, you know, reunions and Christmases and get-togethers of various kinds. And so I would hear French phrases, and I think they were cuss words. You know, I think they would cuss in French, but hide it from the kids a little bit. Uh, But I remember asking my great-uncle once what a certain French word meant. I forgot what the French word was. But he was trying to explain it in English, and he was so frustrated and and aggravated, he couldn't get the English words to line up to fit the French word. And so he, whatever the French word was, he kept saying, it just means that. It means that. It's kind of like that with glory. Uh, It's hard to define, but we can't not try to define it. It has to do with information, but not just information. Sometimes it's something visible, like God shows up with fire or a cloud. That's sometimes his glory. Sometimes it's his reputation. Like I said, sometimes it's the experience of his presence. In short, it's whatever God wants to reveal about himself. That's what God's glory is. That's the first question. The second question is, what is the plan for God's glory What's the plan for God's glory? It seems like there's a plan if we're talking about it moving from one degree of glory to another. In 2 Corinthians 3.18, then there seems some sort of plan. But I think we should back up. Back up earlier in the chapter. We'll start in verse 7. In verse 7, we see the Apostle Paul backing up into the Old Testament to compare the different glories of Old Covenant and New Covenant, or Old Testament and New Testament. So let's read verse 7. He says, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, that's the Ten Commandments revealed at Mount Sinai, calls it a ministry of death because it condemns, right? It showed us to be sinful and without hope, without Christ. 
If that ministry carved on letters of stone came with such glory that the Israelites couldn't even gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, remember? Moses went up to Mount Sinai. After he came down the second time, his face was aglow. And yet, Paul says it was being brought to an end. That glory was being brought to an end. So, will not the ministry of the Spirit that's come in Christ in the new covenant, won't that have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. You see what Paul's doing here? He keeps going. He keeps comparing Christ and Moses, those epics in God's plan, and keeps comparing the differences. So in verse 12, he says, Now, because of the more glory, we have more hope. And because we have more hope, we're more bold. Moses was bold, but he says here, we're not like Moses. Our boldness isn't like Moses. Moses would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. The glory on Moses' face was a fading glory. So Paul says, Moses used to put a veil over his face so that the people couldn't tell when the glory was fading. Moses is much more impressive with a glowing face than just a normal one. Skip ahead to verse 16. There, Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. You see, now the veil is gone. Just like Moses had a veil over his face to conceal the lack of glory, now the veil is removed in Christ for us to see Incredibly more glory. That's God's plan. Old covenant, a fading glory. Not the new covenant. Moses only got glimpses a couple of times of God's amazing glory. But but he didn't have ready access to it. There was nothing permanent about the glory that Moses got to experience. And think about this. Moses uniquely experienced a little bit of glory that he got to see. It wasn't for all the people. Not all the people could see what Moses saw. But in the New Covenant, we all see. We all see permanently. It's not a fading glory. It's a plan of God's glory. And we enter that realm of glory. We begin to see that glory as glory. First through the gospel. So look ahead to chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4. And in verse 4. Here's what we have apart from Christ, no glory. In their case, in our case, in anyone's case who's outside of Christ, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded their minds to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who's the image of God. But look what happens. Verse 6, the same God who said, In Genesis, light shine out of darkness. That same God is shown in our hearts to give the light 
the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our hearts are dark by nature. Our hearts wouldn't see, to mix a metaphor, right? Eyes see, but here Paul talks about our hearts seeing. Our hearts wouldn't see Christ for who he is unless God would do the creation miracle. Just like he said, light be. And it was. That's how he gives faith. That's how we see Christ in dark hearts. It's just like he says of Lydia in Acts 16. It says there, the Lord opened her heart to receive what was said by Paul. Two different ways of describing the same thing, a dark heart or a closed heart. We need light in the dark heart. We need, we need the closed heart ripped open. We're also apparently supposed to have an ever-increasing experience of God's glory according to our main verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18. One day, that'll be face-to-face with Jesus. We'll see him and 1 John 3 tells us, when we see him, we'll be like him. That's not yet. Now, this is, this is our moniker. From one degree of glory to another. We're inching our way along until one day there is this exponential increase of glory. When the Lord either takes us home or... When he returned, before that, it could be small increments of glory here or there. Sometimes there's that season where he really just gives you a steroid pack of, of glory, right? It moves you from one degree of glory to a whole other degree of glory. It's an ever-increasing glory, though. Remember our thesis statement for this book, alongside ever-present weakness. So now let's dig into some other verses here. Look at chapter 4 and verse 7. Ever-present weakness, Paul describes it like this. We have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel, the treasure of the gospel of the glory of God in Christ, that treasure in jars of clay, earthen jars that hold water and are sometimes dirty. Why? Well, to show that the surpassing power, whatever's good in the jar, it belongs to God and not to us. We're afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested In our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Paul there says, We don't lose heart, even though the outer shell of us, our our body, it's wasting away. It's getting old, right? It's falling apart. New creeks and new cracks. It's wasting away, but our inner self is, by God's grace, it's getting renewed every day. 
for this light momentary affliction that we're going through. A little bit later, we'll find out what Paul thinks of as light momentary affliction. It's severe affliction. But he calls it light momentary affliction here because it's in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that's being prepared for us. It's like these two things on a scale. What's heavier? My affliction, my suffering until Jesus comes, or what will be revealed when I see him face to face? What's heavier? And Paul just says, it goes boom, this way with the scales. This one's light. This one's big. It's heavy. It's glorious. So we need to, as he says, look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. The things which are seen are just transient, even if they're 80 years of transiency. The things that are unseen, though, are eternal. Go to chapter 11. It's worth seeing some of these passages where Paul keeps going back to this theme of the ever-present weakness. Some of it just applies to Paul, like the passage we're going to read here. Some of it applies to all of us. Some of it might more apply to missionaries than it does to those who stay and serve the Lord here with witnessing and funding missionaries who go. But nevertheless, what Paul says in chapter 11 about his own experience, verse 24, he's already said he's had imprisonments, beatings. He's often been near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Now you've got to remember what a lash is. That sounds pretty, pretty easy, a lash. But this is a cat of nine tails. This is, this is a whip with glass wedged into the end of several different whips at the end of one big whip. And they'd mastered this technique of throwing it on someone's back as the glass and metal shards dig in, yank it and pull it, and chunks go flying. That's one. Paul had 39 of those. He had 39 of those five different times. You can imagine his back probably didn't heal before the next one came. Amazing suffering. Often near death. Three times I was beaten with rods, he says in verse 25. Once I was stoned. That doesn't mean that he's at a concert. He was literally... They threw stones at him. Three times he was shipwrecked. I mean, just, if you were shipwrecked once, wouldn't that just be, that's your story, man, right? I mean, you show up at a party, you got the shipwreck story in your back pocket, ready to go anytime. And this is just in a list here. Three different times I was shipwrecked. Oftentimes I've been at the sea, day and night on frequent journeys. I'm in danger all the time. I'm in rivers and got robbers my own people are after me the gentiles are after me i'm in danger when i'm in the city i got danger when i'm out of the city i'm danger at danger at sea i'm at danger from false teachers 
toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And then here's the culmination, surprisingly, apart from these other things, these external things. There's the daily pressure of me, on me, of my anxiety, my concern, my burden bearing for all the churches. So he says, who's weak among my churches? And I'm not weak. Who sins and doesn't crush me, tear me apart? See the weakness? This is normal for Paul. Chapter 12, we won't read it, but chapter 12 gives us that famous little bit about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Something, oh, so small as this. A messenger from Satan tormenting him. We don't know what that exactly means. We don't know what Paul's thorn the flesh was, but if it comes from Satan and it's tormenting, and it goes on a long time, he says he prayed three times the Lord would take it away until the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. Keep on. Press on. And then Paul begins to glory in this. He begins to see that God's grace is sufficient and therefore his grace is glorified. Paul says, for when I'm weak, then he's shown to be strong. And so I'd rather glory in my weakness, not my strength. All kinds of suffering. Physical trials, opposition, persecution, inward frailty. Remember all those contrasts in 2 Corinthians 4? feel like I'm on the brink and yet I'm not giving up. Mysterious and private suffering like 2 Corinthians 12. It's a fight of faith to see and to live in both those realities of increasing glory and ever-present weakness. Paul knew them both. He didn't ignore one for the other. It's part of the fight of faith. He says we walk by faith and not by sight. The third question I think we should ask this great book is this. What are the cheap imitations of God's glory? You might not know to ask that question if you weren't familiar with the book, but Paul deals with this issue all through the book. There are cheap imitations to God's glory out there. Really, there are two models of ministry that Paul talks about in the book of 2 Corinthians. One is his own, which is also Jesus's. It's also the biblical way. And then there are these new super apostles who have come to town in Corinth. They're bad-mouthing Paul, and they're promoting themselves. They've shown up with these impressive letters of recommendation, whatever that looks like, who knows. But they come in being commended to the city of Corinth and to the church there. They charge a hefty fee for their ministry. They argue, well, you get what you pay for. Implication, Paul's ministry isn't worth squat. He doesn't charge you anything. They're rhetorically sophisticated. They're, I mean, true orators. And they view that as the mark of power and effectiveness. They boast They brag, they commend themselves the way the world does. They measure success the way the world does. They view strength like the world does. 
They tampered with God's word, Paul says, chapter 4. They also likely looked strong. They didn't just act strong. They probably looked strong, like they had it together, like they had that commanding presence, confident, smooth, put together, handsome, made up, healthy and charismatic. They're exactly the kind of celebrities the world celebrates. But Paul wasn't. And neither was Jesus. Paul keeps contrasting his model of ministry with these hucksters. Look at chapter 2. Let's read a decent-sized section here, which lets you see Paul contrasting the super-apostles, who are really no apostles at all, with his own ministry. Chapter 2, verse 14 Thanks be to God who in Christ leads us in triumphal procession. Well, that sounds pretty promising. That sounds nice, triumphal. But through us, he spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That still sounds pretty nice. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved. That sounds good. But among those who are perishing, well, to one There's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. To God's people, we smell good. To those who aren't, they just smell death. We have that aroma about us. So triumphal procession is one that sometimes stinks. And Paul says, who's sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, we're commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Chapter 3, he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? He's had to do this in the past. He feels bad about it. It's awkward for him. Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation You're written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. Again, the exact opposite of these super apostles who would say, we're sufficient. You want to see? Let me give you a little show. Let me give you this letter. Look how strong I am. Look how high I can lift this rock. I don't know what they did, but they did all kinds of human ways of impressing, commending. They looked glorious. It was a cheap knockoff. So ask yourself, what is strength? When do you feel strong? Have you yet gotten to the place where you can acknowledge you really are the strongest when you are the weakest? Because you're not relying on your puny strength at all. When you finally get outside of yourself and get desperate and lean on him, There's power in that, isn't there? 
Where does your confidence lie? In him? In your abilities? Uh, your history? Your past? Your experience? Your gifts? What do you boast in? Well, don't take up the cheap imitations for God's glory. It's not real glory. A fourth question is, how do we get more of the real stuff? How do we get more of God's glory now? Well, the answer is, with this glorious gift of an unveiled face, remember that? We behold him. Back to our main verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we behold him with this unveiled face. We behold the glory of the Lord. The ESV doesn't, but most translations do have the word mirror in 2 Corinthians 3.18. The beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Why do some say mirror and some don't? Well, because the beholding is sort of a beholding of reflecting. Reflection is wrapped up in the word beholding in the original language. And so some insert mirror there. I think it's right to do that. If so, what is this mirror? There's no mirror in the Bible, is there? Is there a spiritual mirror? No. But where do we go to see the reflection of God's glory like a mirror? Well, we go to Christ. Christ is that mirror. And Christ, the mirror, reflected glory to Paul first when? Road to Damascus. Acts chapter 9, right? Glory was shining all around him. But Paul tells us here in 2 Corinthians that the norm is that we first truly behold God's glory in the gospel. We've already talked about that, 2 Corinthians 4. That God lights up the face of Christ which shows us the gospel of God and it's glorious. He does that in our hearts which is like the center of our being. And it's not just our feelings, it's our thoughts as well in Hebrew and Greek culture. But now as Christians, now that that's happened, where do we go to keep seeing Jesus in the gospel? We go to the Word, don't we? We go to the Word, the Bible. Christ is the mirror being talked about here, and he reflects a divine glory But now we don't see him. We see him in his word. The word reflects Christ. Christ reflects God in his glory. So we behold the gospel. We behold his word, which gives us the gospel. So behold, you have to stare. (laughs) That means you have to open it. You got to read it. And not just read it, but you got to soak in it. You've got to meditate upon it. You have to gaze into it. And let it gaze back and penetrate your heart. Christian, behold him. In some ways, that's a description, a summary of the Christian life until glory, until the last days. We behold him. That's what we do. We commune with him. We go to his word and we talk to him about it. Behold him. That's how we get more of his glory. One more question. What are the results of this increasing glory? What are the results? Well, beholding his glory, we are 
changed. We're transformed, he says. We become what we behold. That's a biblical principle. What we behold is what we become. And that's true whether you're beholding Christ in his word or you're beholding something else. You become that which you behold. That's as old as the Old Testament. Psalm 115, we sing a song based on Psalm 115. It says this, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Not so the idols. The idols of the nations are silver and gold. It's just the work of man's hands. They have mouths drawn on them or carved into them, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. They can't even make a sound with their throat because there's no throat in the gold statue or, or the wooden thing. And those who make them will become like them. Deaf, dumb, mute, lame. Oh, hands that work, sure, but not work to his glory, not work like they were made to work. Eyes that see, sure, but see through this dark lens of sin, which sees Christ as, well, offensive. No, in the gospel, we get to see who he is. And it begins this path of becoming like him. But there is no becoming like him without beholding him. Beholding his glory, we're changed. Beholding his glory, we're also emboldened. We're made bold. Look at 2 Corinthians 3. In verse 11, it says, For if what was brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Now, verse 12, since we have such hope, we are very bold. More glory, more hope, more boldness. Even more hope, even more boldness than Moses. I should knock our socks off. It really should make us bold, that God's word tells us we can have more hope and we can be more bold than Moses. Look at chapter 4 and verse 13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what's been written, I believed and so I spoke. You believe? And what should flow out of that? Well, joy. And when you're really joyful about something, what do you do? Sit on it, keep it to yourself, right? I mean, some of you are a Giants fan or a Patriots fan, and I'm sure you haven't talked to anybody about the game this week, right? And if you could actually go to a Super Bowl, imagine that. Go to a Super Bowl. I'm sure you'd sit there and just mind your own business. After all, you don't know these people. Why would you talk? Why would you yell? Please, it's just a game. You see, we, we talk about what we're happy about. That's the point. There's a disconnect then when we 
aren't bold about the gospel. Maybe the answer isn't always just give me the script and tell me what to say. Or give me some answers to the objections of my friends. Or tell me the Romans road again. Which, which verses in Romans are the Romans road? Okay, I'll write it down this time. I'm going to memorize it. That might be useful. All those things might be useful and good. I know the reason why I'm, why I'm quiet about the gospel when I should be bold. It's because the gospel isn't stirring my heart like it should. I'm not soaking in hope and joy. And when I'm soaking in hope and joy, well, we can't help but speak the things which we've heard and seen. Beholding his glory, we're emboldened. And all of chapter 5 is about this thing. In Christ, we've now been part of his reconciliation team. He made us reconcilers. We are sent into the world with a message of reconciliation, pleading with people, be reconciled to him. Christ has done the work. Come, receive it. Repent of your sins and call on his name. It should make us bold. Beholding his glory also means love and sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are two chapters about giving. I mean money giving. Paul tells the Corinthian church about the Macedonians who gave so sacrificially. One of the best verses, best gospel nuggets in all the Bibles right there, chapter 8, verse 9, which gives the motivation for the Macedonian sacrifice of financial giving. It's rooted in Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Beholding his glory means we start to do what he does, lay down our lives, sacrifice ourselves, our wants, our desires, our stuff. We give. It's beholding his glory. Beholding his glory means also that we groan. That's also in chapter 5. Look at just verses 1 and 2. There he says, we know that if this tent, this body, our earthly home is destroyed, that's all right. We got a building from God, a house made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent, this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. We groan because the body hurts. We groan because life is hard. We also groan because this isn't home. And he's not as close as we would like him to be. We want to see more. We're frustrated with self that we get distracted in reading his word. That we forget in the middle of prayer that we're actually praying and we start to do a to-do list. I hear some people do that. I've never done it myself. But I hear some people do that. We groan. The more we behold his glory, I think the more we groan. So how we do in DSC? By God's grace, until Jesus returns or takes us home, the answer to how we do and will always be the same, it will always be that paradox. Increasing glory, shrouded in ever-present weakness. The glory doesn't mean that the weakness yet goes away. 
Not yet. It will, but not yet. And it's a, it's precarious and important to get that thing of glory right. In other words, to rightly acknowledge the weakness in our life and not pretend as though this is the Pollyanna hour. Pretend that it doesn't hurt. Pretend that it's not bad. To, to pretend that we don't sin. We're to acknowledge our weakness, but we're to look beyond it. We're to see great hope in the midst of it. You've got to see the glory. But to make sure that the glory is Paul's kind of glory and not the kind of glory of those stinking super apostles. Which means thinking quite differently from everyone around you and every marketing campaign you've ever seen. It means renewing your mind in Scripture. Otherwise, you think glory is something other than what it is. You think strength is something other than what it is. You think success is something other than what it is. You think there can't possibly be success and sorrow at the same time. No. There can be. There will be. And we rejoice in and we thank God for the real glory when we see it. We thank it that it's His doing and we don't thank him lightly. We don't rejoice in it lightly. Like, well, yeah, he did some good things, but don't forget the weakness. Don't forget all the suffering. No, we labor to vivaciously rejoice and celebrate his glory, but making sure our rejoicing is always a rejoicing and completely in him. We're celebrating him when we celebrate his gifts. We're not celebrating ourselves. Whatever victory there has been, Christ has led us in triumphal victory. Whatever gift he's given to DSC, it is his doing and not our own. Who's sufficient for these things? None of us. Christ was. So we keep depending on him and not ourselves. We don't begin to have a different boast than the one that's in him. It's only and always in him. So it's right for us to showcase and talk about his faithfulness to us in the last year in some concrete ways. But it's also dangerous. It's dangerous. We have to be careful. We have to be guarded about how we celebrate success even if we're talking about the same success as what Jesus knows and taught and what Paul knows and taught. But let's ask ourselves, in this last year, how has God shown his promises to be true to us? In this last year, how has he shown his work to be real to us? How has he revealed himself more to us? How has he led us in triumph in this last year? How has he shown himself sufficient in this last year? Well, let me run through some things while we pray. Would you bow with me? Let me close by thanking the Lord for a few things. Recounting to him well, some of the trophies of his grace that we can observe in our midst from this last year.
Father, we humbly thank you that our community groups are thriving. I remember many years ago, there being three community groups in this church and maybe a dozen people between them. Now there are 26 of them and 350 people in them. Lord, that's not our doing. To you alone goes the glory for that. And we're not just thankful for the headline, the ability to say that. We're thankful for what it means that more people are sharing life more intimately, more deeply than they were before. Lord, we thank you that we're, by your grace, more and more deliberate and strategic about how to use these community groups and how to connect them to mission and how to connect them to Sunday morning's worship, how to, how to connect them even to family ministry and counseling. And you're doing a wonderful synergistic work among pastors and others in the church. We're thankful for that, Lord. We're thankful for what you've done in our worship in this last year. Lord, I hear singing to be louder all the time, and I'm eager for it to continue to grow by your grace. Lord, a surprise you've brought us is that we have, oh, I don't even know how many, but many people in our church who write wonderfully rich songs for us to sing. We thank you for your leadership to get us to write songs from the Psalms. Thank you, Lord, for your work in us in this past year to get us to sing scripture. Lord, we acknowledge your work in our hearts in the expressiveness of our service and the, the freeness. We know we need to go further in that. Too many of us, Lord, are worried about what others think around us as we sing or as we dare lift up a hand in praise, but we thank you for your, your work to move us from one degree of glory to another. Lord, I thank you for a while back, my plea to come on Sunday morning eagerly and expectantly and also early was received so well. And I sense, Lord, that expectancy at nine o'clock on a Sunday morning. Give us more of it, Lord, we pray. Thank you for... So many families seeing the rich blessing of the Lord's Supper and coming. Seems like every one, Lord, there's more there in attendance, more at our dinner before. Lord, we thank you for your instruction to us in your word, in the preaching of your word. We thank you for this past summer, spending 90 days going through the New Testament. And we, Lord, we give you glory if we read our Bibles more now because of that or got into a great habit of listening to the Bible in our car as we drive. Thank you for your work in our church this summer. Thank you, Lord, for things like our conference, Claris, and we thank you for fellowship and partnership with other churches and pastors in town through the Gospel Coalition. You're doing things there, Lord, that are not of our doing. And we continue to pray that you do what only you can do, especially as we think 
and dream lofty things about church planting here and in North Africa in upcoming years. Lord, I praise you for the Macedonian-like giving that you have done in this church in the last year, that 100,000 plus was raised for church planning in addition to our normal budget. We didn't do that before. It's not because we're that much bigger. You're working in our wallets. We thank you, Lord, for what that means, that next week we will officially send off our first church plant. Redemption of Rio Rancho. Carlos is its preaching pastor. Lord, you've been good. You've been better to us than we deserve a million times over. Lord, we want to be a church planning church. We want to see people saved. We thank you in this past year. We have seen people saved. We, we hear about those we're, we're working on for your glory, that they would be reconciled in you. We thank you, Lord, for these concrete and tangible, invisible things to acknowledge, to praise you for. But we also say, we also acknowledge, Lord, there are thousands of intangible, unquantifiable, unknown ways in which you are exercising your power, your authority, your glory, your goodness. And so may we labor, Lord, to see to behold and to be transformed and to spread your glory in this world. Make us restless for more glory. Keep us from the cheap glory that's according to the wisdom of this world and give us only your gold. And help us, Lord, to be content and trust you, knowing that you are moving us and this church and your plan from one degree of glory to another, even when sometimes it looks like we might take a step backwards or things were harder than we expected or there was more opposition than we would like. You are increasing your glory alongside and right within ever-present weaknesses. Lord, help us not to be disheartened by the latter. Help us to rejoice in the former, your glory. For your sake, we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing again.